Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to another glorious team up of the Empire podcast and Pilot TV podcast teams in association with Disney+. This episode is dedicated to examining and exploring The Dropout, the new show on Disney Plus that examines the rise and fall of Elizabeth Holmes, founder and CEO of a health tech company called Theranos, not Theranos or Thanos, <laughs> Jimbo. I'm very, very sad to tell you. Theranos was right. Theranos was right. Theranos was right. Uh, and driving force behind the invention of a system for testing people's blood, all based on a simple prick of a finger rather than ramming a needle into a vein. It would have revolutionized the medical industry, but for one small problem. The tech didn't work. Something that Holmes and Theranos went to great lengths to hide over a number of years. Along the way, Theranos was hailed as a huge success. It was valued at around $9 billion. And Holmes, who had dropped out of Stanford University to pursue her idea, hence the name of the show, was hailed as one of the brightest minds in tech startups. Ultimately, though, the house of cards she had built, this is a science bit, by the way, folks. Ultimately, though, the house of cards she had built, along with her partner, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, came crashing down amidst an onslaught of whistleblowing from inside the company, a litany of court cases, and investigations from the US Securities and Exchange Commission, aka the SEC. The upshot in 2018, the SEC charged Holmes with deceiving investors by massive fraud, that's a quote, and was fined half a million dollars. She returned nearly 19 million shares in Theranos and was banned from serving as an officer or director of a public company for 10 years. Furthermore, Holmes was recently found guilty of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud and defrauding investors, although not defrauding patients. Uh, she will be sentenced in September of this year following the conclusion of a separate trial for Sonny Balwani. Holmes faces up to 20 years in federal prison, plus paying up millions of dollars in fines and restitution. It is quite the fall from grace. The show itself, The Dropout, is an eight-episode examination of all of this. It's based on the podcast of the same name, which debuted in 2019. Hey, if you're looking to buy a podcast to turn into a TV show, then come calling. <laughs> Slide into my DMs, please. It stars Amanda Seyfried as Holmes. It stars Nafine Andrews as Sunny, and it has a very, very deep bench of a cast, including the likes of Elizabeth Marvel, Stephen Fry, William H. Macy, and many, many more. Elizabeth Merriweather created the show. She wrote the first and last episodes. She serves as showrunner, uh, while Michael Showalter, director of The Big Sick, called the shots on the first four episodes. We've seen the first three. Beth, well, I haven't introduced you yet, Beth. I'm about to get to you. <laughs> Uh, forget I said that. Forget I introduced Beth. Uh, we've seen the first three. Beth, who you may be here, uh, I think has seen a couple more. But the first three episodes are now available on Disney+. And of course, by we, I mean my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, or maybe I should call them my drop-ins. Oh, here we go. Very clever. Very clever. <laughs> Do not be fooled by the fact that we all officially work for Empire. For the purposes of this podcast, James Dyer and Beth Webb come clad in the costume of the Pilot TV podcast. Welcome both. Hello. I feel so uh, so torn right now. This is a co-pro. This is a co-pro. This is a co-pro. <laughs> because you have the important stuff for the hard-hitting TV shows. This is, yeah, absolutely. Whenever they want a hard-hitting TV show dissected, they call us three, apparently. We put the flags up, yeah. 
they ask themselves, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? You would call Beth Webb, <laughs> James Dyer and Chris Hewitt yes. and you would get them talking about hard-hitting stuff. <laughs> I'm just here to get funding for my new invention that I've come up with. I'm hoping that you two will be my first investors. <laughs> you two will be your first investors. Well, Bono, in the end, you've got loads of money. <laughs> so I think they'll be fine. Uh, obviously, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr., He'll be mulling it over. There's the joke. There's the old joke. Anyway, you've lost your edge, James. That bit I understood. Yeah, good. They're a popular Irish rock combo. Ah, good. Like Clannad. We're going ahead with this investment with or without you, is what Bono would say. No, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Ah! Where Wall Streets have no name? Anyway, 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 what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail is a mantra that is repeated by Elizabeth Holmes, played by Amanda Seyfried in The Dropout, bringing it nicely back on track. And it is, I think, a line that speaks to the hubris that lies at the center of the show, because this is essentially what it is about. It is about hubris. It is about the lies that people tell themselves. So I think there's, there's maybe something that this generation's who... You are involved in tech startups and whatnot. Tell themselves an awful lot. They 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 tend to, and I'm very familiar with this. Lie to themselves about their capabilities. They tend to not <laughs> listen to the truth about what they're capable of. They tend to bury their head in the sand when the truth rears its ugly head. And I think that is something that that lies very very firmly at the center of of Holmes's deception and self deception. What do you think about that? Yeah, I completely concur. I think we're seeing a real swell of, I mean, it's interesting that this show has come off the back of something like Inventing Anna, uh, which is based on the Anna Delvey uh, story, which is another case where just absolutely self-assurance to the point of delusion, but you kind of hang into it. That is that is what comes to the core of this show. And it's completely, I mean, horrifying for one, fascinating on another level. I can completely see why this story is is being serialized um, and shown in the way that it is. It is so interesting to see, especially in a woman as well, how how confidently she can navigate through this very misogynistic world and come out, you know, I mean, she comes out swinging even, even now, you know, she's so defiant in her, in her attitudes towards this venture. It's yeah, it's so yeah. interesting. She's still saying that she's not guilty. She's still maintaining that she's not guilty and that, that you know, she's innocent of the charges that have been brought against her and the charges, uh, some of which, of course, she's been convicted of. Yeah, I was about to say, that ship has perhaps sailed slightly, <laughs> given that she's awaiting sentencing and facing 20 years in federal prison. But, you know, no spoilers. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, no, I, I, I just think you can't help but root for her. There's that bit, there is a bit in this where she stands up in front of the board uh, facing them down when they've all lost confidence in her and just snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. And I was just like, the moxie just to do that and to think on her feet and to come up with a, a solution that not only she thinks might work, but will, they will absolutely buy. And the fact that she puts on a like because she's, she's very aware. And she says an interesting thing, I think, at one point to Sunny when she says, I don't feel things the way other people feel things. Mm. Um, and you get that sense that she almost has this sort of almost android-like quality, the way she looks in the mirror and the way she repeats lines to try and sound like a human. It sounds, it's a bit like Terminator 2, like she's trying, no, no, why you cry. Like it's, it's very much like that. And, but you see her doing it, she practice, and she lowers the tim- timbre of her voice to mm. be taken more seriously in a male-dominated world. Uh, which is really, really, it's it's fascinating watching kind of her mind spin and the way she kind of manipulates the people around her. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, she's a really compelling 
character, as all of these these kind of fall from grace stories need. You need a compelling character who, on the one hand, you can vilify a bit, but you also have to root for them. Otherwise, you're not gonna you're not gonna stick it out. I have to say, I thought that was interesting. I thought we're only three episodes in, and obviously there are five episodes to come, and I'd be fascinated to see how she declines further because we're getting obviously hints and 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 clues as to the moral degradation there that she knows that her product isn't exactly working it's not entirely on the up and up and yet she is prepared to well essentially lie about it mm-hmm. and to fake tests and when she is trying to get money from a big investor in Switzerland that they will manipulate the results of it to get that big investor to sign on um, and she will I thought it was really fascinating that in episode 3 that she repeats verbatim the meltdown <laughs> that the genius in the Apple store has with her and uses it as a way of manipulating Don played of course by Michael Ironside shout out to Michael Ironside uh, <laughs> she manipulates Don uh, into getting him uh, and the, the board on her side just as she's about to be tossed out. There's something obviously about being a woman in in a man's world. She refers to this frequently. She's frequently the only per, the only woman in a room. She's frequently up against dude bros. But there's also something else there besides that, I think. There's a, there's a corrosive element of her personality mm. um, that I, I'd be fascinated to see how the show explores it going mm. forward. I, I think obviously with these things, you have to get the audience on the side of your protagonist initially, I have a suspicion that this show is going to twist the knife. It is nuanced though, and that's what I really like about this. This was this isn't sort of a, a sharp shift into villain. This is yes. <laughs> she's not twirling the metaphorical mustache. No, she's not. There is, I mean, there is a there is a, a very um visually punchy moment when she does sort of turn past the point of no return. But what I really like about this show that other kind of depictions of women occasionally fall flat on is and what I think Elizabeth Merriweather's worked very hard to achieve is to make sure that she's not glorified in any way and shown to be exactly the woman she is. I'm thinking of um, the film Bombshell especially and a real Mm -hmm. issue I took with that is it was almost too afraid to show that these women were flawed, to show that these women were women that worked for Fox News. You know, these were women who did have flaws and, and made mistakes and were awful, but but sort of yeah. skirted around that in that film because they were they were victims as well. And it was like you can't be one thing without the other. But with this show, it shows every kind of corner of her personality and and that she's this fully formed, robust woman who is as capable of being dreadful and terrible as she is being a victim as well. There's, And I do have to say in the first episode, there is an instance of sexual assault, which mm-hmm. I, I spoke about on the Pilot TV podcast. The way that's handled is so, so skilled and delicate and impacts the story in a way, again, that is just so nuanced. I was really, really impressed with how that was held and the fact that it was included, but again, is is still just part of the jigsaw puzzle of this person. It's not a definitive thing. Is mm. is really mm. really a big achievement, I think. Yeah, and for example, there's that montage where she goes to a bunch of tech investors, and they're all just disinterested blokes. Some are even just like repulsed, you know, bros. repulsed mm. by yeah. her presence. It's uh, yeah, skin crawling. Yeah, and then she gets into she gets onto a yacht with Larry Ellison. And, you know, many of these people are real people. Larry Ellison is a real person. He is the father of David Ellison. He is the father of Megan Ellison, uh, uh, you know, who, you know, 
you've produced many, many excellent movies we've talked about on the Empire podcast <laughs> and some stinkers as well. We should be, we should be honest about that. Uh, and he is one of the world's richest men. And he's played, brilliantly, I don't know, Jimbo, if you knew this, he's played by Hart Bochner. I did not twig that at all. Yeah, he is, because you never see his eyes. He's wearing sunglasses the it entire is. time, so you can never see. But he is, so Ellis from Die Hard Hans is now playing Bubby. Ellison. He's your white knight. He is her white knight. Yeah, so he <laughs> survived amazing. that night at Nakatomi Plaza. He went and he got rich and he ultimately inspired Elizabeth Holmes to go forward with Theranos. So... You know, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> <laughs> but when she's on the yacht with uh, with Larry Ellison, like he literally says, you know, you want a husband, kids, that's going to slow you down. She says, you've got a wife and kids. And he just laughs at her. He pours like, scorn in her face. Yeah. Mm. And so all of that is is something that, that, that feeds into the character of Holmes in this. And, you know, the, the as you say, the, the her her conscious decision to lower her voice and to try and come across as a little bit more imposing I think in, in and intimidating in rooms filled with men is is fascinating Beth what's your what's your t- you're taking out have you ever lowered your voice in the pilot TV podcast That's like, a, just no, to intimidate I've never done that James and, and Boyd <laughs> if anything I get higher and higher the more I get with James as he keeps talking no no but that is that is fascinating to see how it's not even it's like a form of Rather than compromising herself, it's like she's trying to evolve into the people that she wants to be. There is a real underlying sense of like idolism with people like Steve Jobs, you know, and other big, you know, entrepreneurs, creative geniuses of that have really spoken to her. You know, I never see it as her sort of losing parts of herself to be those people. It's like she's adapting and evolving to be more like them. It's, it's so interesting to see. It doesn't feel like a sign of weakness when she lowers her voice and changes mm. her behavior. It's more, she's kind of, it's almost a, a form of fandom, but also a form of kind of mimicking because she's like, well, this is just what I need to do to get ahead. It's yeah, it, it is so deft in the way that, that all of that is handled. I wonder whether it's, it's as much age, I think, as it is gender that she's kind of pushed aside and she's, she's, you know, not taken seriously, partly because she's a woman in this very male-dominated industry, but also because she's so young. And there's a bit when her assistant starts, and she's like, oh, I've never had a boss who's basically my age before. Yeah. It's like, what, what do you do with that? And the way she's being told how to dress, there's an interesting line in there was, as well, where it's just like, oh, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg wears this. It's like, he's a man. He can do what he wants as a woman. And she talks about your, your armour, how you present yourself to the world is your armour. That's what you carry with you. Uh, and it is kind of looking at that double standard and, and how it works, and which is why the genius bar scene, I think, is so interesting, because up until that point, she's been like, I am playing in a man's world. I need to play by their rules. And at that moment, you see she kind of, she's looking at this kind of girl having a breakdown at the genius bar, and she's thinking, actually, I have my own weapons. I have my own tools. And they're just stupid enough that this will completely work. Mm. And uh, I thought that was a great moment. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think there are moments when we see the real her, when she isn't performing. There's a, there's a performative element to a lot of what she does. And a lot of what she does later is driven by a sense of panic. She's trying to keep, you know, she's trying to stick her finger in all the holes before the, the dam collapses. But there are moments, I think, when we get to see the real her, which is this quite geeky young woman who quotes Yoda to Laurie Metcalf's incredibly forbidding professor of medicine. Uh, 
and then claims that back later on. But I think one of the most revealing moments, there's a moment where she's dancing to her iPod in her office and then her assistant, who she later fires, of course, for <laughs> violation of privacy. But she she's dancing around her iPad, iPod and completely unfiltered. And there's a moment outside the Apple store in the third, beginning of the third episode where everyone's queuing up for the first iPhone. And the, the guy comes out with the first iPhone. He's like, yeah, I got it. I got the first iPhone. And she is just enraptured. And everyone is just so happy for this guy because yay, capitalism. Uh, but <laughs> in that moment, I think we get a sense of the real her, which is someone who genuinely wants to do good. And I, I, I cannot help but compare this show in a way to the, the show we lasted one of these episodes for, which was Dope Sick. Uh, in both in that they kind of flit around in time to try and fill you in and, and get you up to speed in the story. So you get to see her deposition where she's, you know, she's, the walls are closing in around her and each episode is is opened and closes with the framing device of her giving this deposition and being very, very stressed out. And then you, you flip back in time and you flit around to see how Theranos was built. But both Dope Sick, uh, I would argue to an extent, and the dropout are examples of how altruism and altruistic ideals and principles can be very, very quickly corrupted by the riches and rewards on display. You could argue, for example, that Purdue Pharma, uh, certainly, you know, uh, Richard Purdue, the character played by Michael Stuhlbarg in Dopesick, came up with OxyContin altruistically, that he did genuinely want to help people. And I think here with, with Elizabeth Holmes, she genuinely thinks this is a medical breakthrough that is going to revolutionize the world. And then things start going wrong. See, I, I think the bigger problem I have sort of with her sort of mindset in it is it's not so much that she wants to change the world, it's that she wants to be someone who changes the world. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It, it felt less like it comes from a place of this is a thing that desperately needs to happen and I can make people's lives better. More like, you know, she wanted to be a billionaire. She wanted to be that person. She wanted to be like a jobs type character. Uh, which is ultimately what she became before mm. <laughs> slight fall from grace. She did get what she wanted. Um, I'm not sure that it came from entirely. I don't think it came from necessarily bad, a bad place. I think it came from a quite self-involved place, um, which is maybe not ideal. I mean, there is a thread that runs through that that does counter that. And I mean, we'll touch on the supporting cast later, but her relationship with her mother feels like the very much the beating heart of this otherwise very... Um, I've, I reviewed it for the, for Empire and I, it's almost like a trance, like pursuit of power. It's almost like she's carried by this kind of, it's, it, it seems like she's almost like consumed by it to the point where she doesn't even know what she's doing anymore. It's, it's very interesting, but yeah, at the heart of it is this very honest relationship with her mother, which is very present in the first episode, especially around the instance of sexual assault mm. and her mother's encouragement for her to do better. And it's hard not to listen to that when you do see where she becomes. And, and she checks in with her mother later on in the series as well. Um, almost this kind of a reminder of there is some good in there. Um, but yeah, otherwise I, I do agree with you. It becomes, yeah, she becomes one of these, she wants to be a, a false idol. She wants to be, you know, the David Bowie of, Silicon Valley kind of thing. You don't think she's being truthful then when she says, you know, this can change the world or I want to I want to change the world. So she's believing more in the idea of, you know, the American dream. She's believing more in the idea that anyone 
although it helps if you you know have parents who can raise six million dollars in capital, <laughs> which, which sets her apart, I would say, from from most people who have great ideas. But she says, you know, the world works. She says, as to Laurie Metcalf's character, the world works in certain ways until a great idea comes along and changes everything. So, but you think that's 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 a bit of a front in a way that she's she's basically just what she wants the riches that comes with it rather than I, idealistically pursuing this this idea of something that can revolutionize how people get their blood tested and checked i think she started off with obviously started off with better intentions and i think that she was driven from a more personal place i think it then it's a it's a as i say it's nuanced i feel i feel like every time i think about it i think something slightly different i'm thinking about the first episode for example where she sat in William H. Macy's character, so this is Richard, uh, I can't pronounce his surname, sorry, Richard <laughs> Foyes? Foyes? Richard Foyes? The, the Fonz, <laughs> I believe, is, is how you pronounce that name. Okay. We were sat in his, his um, front room at Christmas, and she's trying to explain her ambitions to him. And it is very, it, it feels quite childlike in the way that she says, oh, I want to be... I want to be rich and ambitious and I want to make all this change. And he's sort of talking down to her and you can, you can understand the early drive there. But I think with her mother, especially and that relationship and her mother wanting her to do well from such a place of love and that she shares that love with her mother, there's, there's quite an awkward scene where she does tell her mother that she loves her and her mother always like closes up because she doesn't want her daughter to to sort of be too emotional but still wants the very Mm. best for her and it's hard to ignore those moments in the show and not associate that with her intentions certainly as she she starts out and then again as i say there's a there's a conversation they have slightly further on in the series which again it kind of touches back to that and it coming from this place of of yeah, love, I guess, and a, and a love for her her parents and and that initial, you know, a love of her younger self, I guess, and what she she wants her teenage self almost to look at her and and find her inspiring. Would the show have worked had it had it made her more overtly sinister, malevolent? It's something I've seen a bit more with Inventing Anna, where she is just down and out, dreadful, <laughs> and and that that certainly plays into more kind of a, a soap kind of tone, I guess, like a soap yeah, yeah, tone. Yeah. But with this, I think it's, I think tonally, it does a very very good job at keeping you engaged in the story and the dynamics of the story and the politics of the story. And I'm very yeah, I am very interested in her as a character as i said she's she's fascinating i don't mm. agree with her on, on any state of things but i can <laughs> i can understand that journey i can understand yeah what motivated her in the first place and how exactly how she got to where she is yeah i think it's important that you're sort of with her on this route because this, this this so this show flirts i think with black comedy in places uh like there yeah. are some there are some genuinely funny moments but it takes the more docudrama approach and it, it does work like she gives her a real like you do root for him i think by the time she starts making just out by the, it's just the the lice nobles doesn't it what starts as a little oh it worked but it doesn't work now so we'll show them the time it worked so it's not lying it's just time shifting so it starts with mm. the smallest lie and then it becomes this absolute porky pie the size of a house and it's just it just it gets out of control i think she just loses yeah. complete control over it but it's trying to work out you know because n- like i said none of it comes from a bad place but like the it's interesting how they correctly 
I think I don't know anything about her actual home life, but I like the fact that there is a distance between her and her father. And although, you know, she turns to her mother quite a lot, her mother doesn't understand her and never has understood her because their brains work very differently. And there's a sense of, and I wonder whether that's part of the relationship Sonny that comes with that, that she sees this older guy who understands her, listens to her, and maybe meets her on an intellectual level that her parents never have done. So the relationship mm. with him is fascinating, especially yes. given how the turns have gone in the court case and how she has depicted that relationship. It's interesting seeing the seeds, seeds of that being sown here. You know, even little things about the green juice. He's like, drink the green juice. I don't want to drink the green juice. And he becomes very dominant in that regard. Yeah. So their relationship on the one hand is, you know, is a partnership, but it's not an equal partnership. And, like, and he is slightly coercive. It's a bit where she tries to buy a car. And he's like, I like driving you around, which sounds an awful lot like, I like you needing me to drive you around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I thought was quite telling. Yeah. I saw someone on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, saying that they were very surprised by how Sonny is depicted in the show. I think they may have only seen the first episode or maybe even the first two episodes at that point. Um, because I think there is a darker vein to Sonny uh, and a darker thread, a more manipulative thread going on with that character. And you really begin to see it, I think, in episode three. Um, I'm very intrigued to see where that relationship goes because they were together and they were they had they had a clandestine relationship for 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 many years. So even when she even when he comes on a COO, which happens at the end of episode three. By the way, if you haven't seen the first three episodes, I'm so sorry, no, but they're on Disney Plus right now. So get caught up; uh, <laughs> it'll all be fine. So but at the end of episode three, he comes on a COO. But even then, they they weren't open about their relationship, their romantic relationship with with their their coworkers and with By people who worked for them. I think. By necessity. Indeed. And so they were there were there was a lot of deception even within that and a lot of opportunity, I guess, for uh, manipulation and coercion. Uh, also, I also think it's fascinating. You know, he does seem like a very likable person. Naveen Andrews is a very, very good actor. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I do think it's interesting, the age gap between them. Initially, I thought, oh, he can't be that much older than Amanda Seyfried. And then I looked it up uh, because in real life it was a 19 year age gap. And Devine Andrews is actually 16 years, I believe, older than Amanda Seyfried. So that age gap actually, you did, you do feel it in the characters yeah, as well. I Even when she's do. playing, you know, she's mid 30s, but she's playing 20, early, early to mid 20s, -ness, you still feel that age gap. Well, she's yeah. playing 18 when you first, uh, when they yeah. first meet, isn't she? So, yeah. And when he would have been what, like late 30s at that point. So he would have been, yeah. Uh, so I think there'll be more revelations to come with that character and that relationship as the show goes on. Let's talk about Amanda Seyfried because she she came to this part pretty late in the day. This yeah. this part, uh, you know, it's out there. It's public knowledge. Kate McKinnon of SNL had been cast uh, as Elizabeth Holmes initially. There is a, a another project. There's a, a movie potentially in the works with Adam McKay directing, uh, based on a on a book about this, uh, in which Jennifer Lawrence might play Elizabeth Holmes. But Amanda Seyfried, fresh off an Oscar nomination, of course, came on board for this quite late in the day, but hit the ground running. And this is a very interesting, peculiar characterization. You know, there's a there's an awful lot going on with the way that she moves her. Her face, not just her voice, but her her facial manipulations, the way she moves her mouth, the way she moves her jaw, her body language is very interesting. Um, it's a really, really good performance, I think. Yes. I have not seen Kate McKinnon in enough 
non-comedic roles to not be able to associate. I, I imagine what I'm saying is I imagine that would look like a very different show. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think this is a really fantastic pairing. I've not seen um, Sophie Dean in very much recently, especially. And it was very strange. There's a moment in the, the first episode where she's getting ready in front of a mirror to get ready for a house party. And the, me as a teenager remembering her doing that in Mean Girls, you know, where she's spelling the K for Karen backwards in sequence and she's got her little mouse ears on. It was very funny to have those as two kind of bookmarks in her career. Very funny. Um, <laughs> but she is, as I said, this is an incredibly nuanced role. She has to hit a lot of different notes here. She needs to be not sympathetic, but as we've said, you need to be able to understand the workings of her while simultaneously seeing her calcify into something quite horrible. Um, she has to deal with some really tough stuff in the in the first episode alone, which covers a lot of ground. And I'm referring to again like the sexual assault, but also yeah. all sorts of other things that she has to undergo. Um and also she's got a change from what, 17 to 18 to 34 over the course of this show. So it mm. really is asking a lot of her and she does it very, very, very well. I think this is the best thing I've seen her in or the most exciting thing I've seen her in, in, in quite some time. It's something in her eyes as well. She's got the most magnificent eyes that can kind of hold so much emotion in them while simultaneously not giving very much away at all. It's um, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic casting. Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure. I, like, I'm not throwing shade at, at at Kate McKinnon, but I don't think it would have been the same at all. No, because um, I think you have to you have to walk that line, and she has to be uh, the once likable, but also you have to be mistrustful of her. But also, the, I think because Holmes. It almost exists on a slightly different frequency to all the people around her, and I think this is played really well. Like it's, the term outsider is bandied around quite a lot, but she's not an outsider, maybe in the traditional sense. But she is so in the fact that, again, like when she's in, going to the party in the mirror and she's pretending to laugh at people's jokes because she's like, "This is how I've seen people laugh at other people's jokes," and she's trying to. It's, it's she's like <laughs> putting so on a, it's a performance. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, she's yeah. putting on a performance of how humans behave. Yeah. Mm. And that's a, that's a really difficult thing to pull off. Well, it really is. She's she's fantastic. She she's really really good. She's had a hell of a career, actually. Just looking at you know looking at her uh, her filmography here on the IMDb, and she's she's the sort of person that can flit around. And she can do anything. So she can do really broad comedy, uh, like you know your your Ted's and your Mean <laughs> Girls, and then she can do really serious drama like like Mank and this. She and was she's outstanding got- in Mank. She was such. An amazing one that you don't like. You expect her to show up and do an incredible job, but to come out of that as a real standout, I think, was a real accomplishment. But she is supported, as we've said, by a very, very deep bench on this show. Uh, so Naveen Andrews, excellent as Sunny. Everyone's excellent. I'm, I'm not even if I, if I started listening, everyone was excellent. We'd be here all year. <laughs> uh, but there are a couple of people I wanted to point out and uh, and pull out. We've talked about Hart Bochner, Ellis. From Die Hard, the standout of the show, absolutely, as Larry Ellison. But, uh, you know, Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is in it, and he is someone who hasn't really done a lot of serious acting over the years, mm. Stephen Fry, which is which is interesting, because he's really good. But I love the fact that his character, Ian Gibbons, is introduced. He goes full Stephen Fry and goes full QI on us and drops an interesting fact about <laughs> chemotherapy in the first 30 seconds. <laughs> 
Yes. I mean, it's very hard. I don't know what it's like stateside, but it's obviously very hard for us to see Stephen Fry on screen and not think, oh my God, it's Stephen Fry. And it's the Stephen Fry we know and love. Exactly. And and he's very much cast that way. Like I I primarily see him in cameos these days where he's playing like a quiz host, somebody that shows up and it's known for being Stephen Fry and the character riffs or the fact that we know that this is Stephen Fry. Whereas with this, he has to push that all down by his his uh, trivia knowledge, which is inescapable at this stage, I imagine. He probably ad-libbed that. <laughs> he probably did. And they were like, do you know what, he's Stephen Fry. So, um, but yeah, he plays this, this very harried chemist who gets embroiled um, in this from a very early stage um, mm. and is also friends with Elizabeth, which is obviously not a favourable position to be in. But it's still, you know, they, they do mind that sort of twinkly aspect of his personality and he's just a, a really, he's just a really bloody lovely man who gets caught up in the wrong <laughs> thing. Very much in the same way that Michael Keaton does in, in Dope Sick, where you see him at the start and you think, oh, it's, it's lovely Michael Keaton. And then you're like, oh no. Uh, and you have to watch yes. him kind of navigate through this stuff. But I do, it is really nice to see him playing against the grain here and showing that he's more than capable of doing that. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a great, a great part for him. There's a particularly, I think, heartbreaking scene when he's trying to get into the lab when the security, Jobsworth security guard comes in and says, no, you can't go in there, it's dressing him down. And then the security guard turns up later on, like when someone's leaving the building. I was like, is this just an American thing? This is happening in the UK when when people leave their jobs, they are escorted out by security guards. Do buildings regularly have security guards? These are all questions that went through my head. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it depends on whether you're you're leaving of your own volition or whether you have been catapulted into the sun, which I believe is what Let's happens in that case. Let's experiment, Chris. Let's see if we can get fired, and then see, <laughs> let's see if we get escorted from the building by burly guards. Where oh, have you? Know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the moment when uh, when Edmund Koo gets gets fired. He gets eighty sixth, and he has to leave the building. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen that in in over here in Britain, but I've heard of it. I have heard of it. I've heard of people who have to pack up their stuff and then they, ha- they literally have to be watched by security guards uh, lest you transfer any sensitive data or take, you know, take a mug that isn't yours. And it's it's awful. It's really dehumanizing. But also that storyline with 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 uh, with Edmund Koo, uh, played by James Hiroyuki Liao and Utkarsh and Budkar's Rakesh, the way that they are privy to what's going on. And it's interesting at the end of episode three that Rakesh quits rather than be complicit in mm. the goings on at Theranos. I think that's a really interesting storyline. I'd be interested to see how the show develops without them because they are essentially the Greek chorus. They're essentially the 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 onlookers uh, who are privy to what's happening, and you know the conscience of the of the company. So mm. with the conscience of the company gone, will things really spiral out of control? I don't know. Let me check Wikipedia. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Just check Wikipedia, and yes, it spiraled out of control. Uh, there are a couple of other people I wanted to talk about. Uh, Bill Macy, as he likes us to call him, uh, with an incredible bald cap slash fright wig type thing going on there. Oh That's basically like I look in the mornings. <laughs> <laughs> he does look like the the mad scientist in is it Crash Bandicoot? <laughs> oh my god! That's, I don't know. I'm never going to be able to see anything else now. That's, that's it. That is one reference that I did not expect Beth Webb to be dropping on this show. That's wild. 
<laughs> but he, I mean, he gets to have, I mean, nobody really has fun in this, but I feel like he gets to have the most fun as the constantly enraged or like there is an episode later on called All White Men, which is which is a fascinating episode, but he gets to be the kind of founding white man in this story. He's just a Burke, isn't he? He's just yeah. a He's just a horrible Burke. Yeah. I'm trying not to swear on this on this episode. I, I think I'm it's not finding alternatives, Burke. He's <laughs> he's a real one. He's a real <laughs> bit of a one. He's a real bin suit. That's what he is. <laughs> I'm trying to popularize bin suit. Yeah, no, I like it. One who wears a bin for a suit is basically what I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying with, with that insult. Uh, but he's great. He is. He's really, really good in this. And uh, should we all marvel at Elizabeth Marvel, who of course plays uh, Noelle Holmes, Elizabeth's mother? And I was watching the show, and I was wondering, why am I liking this show so much? And I realized it's because it's a Marvel show, and I am predisposed <laughs> to like anything involving Marvel. So there you go. Is she is she eliminated from being in Marvels now? Would it get too confusing? I don't know. I think she, she might be in, in the Marvels. Yeah, that would be the the guess. That would be the yeah. way to go with that one. Yeah. I wonder yeah, <laughs> if she has superpowers. Uh, but anyway, we're running a little bit out of time, so I wanted to ask you uh, both a question. There is a preponderance of shows that are uh, investigating, doing deep dives into tech companies, startups, people who Icarus themselves. Uh, they flew far too close to the sun. We worked super pumped the battle for uber even something like billions which takes a much longer more luxurious look at stuff like this what is the fascination with this world and with this type of people and is there a danger with shows like this and perhaps more something like super pumped or a we worked that they could be celebrations rather than condemnations well, i think the appetite comes purely from the fact that we want to see rich people suffer <laughs> also hubris i think people want to see hubris punished yeah. Uh, I I do think there's an inherent sense that, and it's also it's like when people climb very high, they fall very hard. So there's inherent drama in that. You know, if she'd started up like a little, you know, co-op on a local corner and it hadn't really worked out, no one would care at all. <laughs> but you know, because she became like a self-made billionaire, mm. and then her net worth was adjusted from I think nine billion dollars to literally naught, like that by I, Forbes. Yeah, it's quite impressive. Yeah. I wonder yeah. why Forbes would rate me. <laughs> <laughs> Host of the Empire Podcast has, has has major investments in Coke Zero and Penguins. <laughs> can you rate, can you rate someone at less than zero? I don't know, but but yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think also there can be a danger, and I don't think this necessarily rests on the on the shoulders of the creators of shows like this, or indeed films like The Wolf of Wall Street or margin call or boiler room or Gary Glenn Ross, where you get a you get a sense that some of the dude bros in particular, the people who actually would later then turn down investment to the likes of Elizabeth Holmes, will see films and shows like this which have this aspirational aspect to it. And they have to show the lavish lifestyle. So they have to they show that you know when Sonny says he's bought a Lamborghini, you have to show in the next shot that he has a Lamborghini. Yeah. So you have to show that the lifestyle is something that is worth pursuing and worth living. There's a danger that sometimes these things can be misinterpreted and the message of the show could be missed by people who just see the glitter and the glamour and the glitz. And that's all they focus on. Yeah, I think... I don't think this is the last show that we'll see of this this kind of nature. I agree. I think it's going to, there's going to be many many more examples of this. But one of the you know this is this is rarefied air in the extent of what went wrong, the extent of the 
half truths that were told, shall we say, <laughs> in order to cover up the fact that the the, the device just didn't work at mm. all. And I've read a little bit more about some of the the cases where where patients were horribly misdiagnosed because they put their faith in in Theranos and its equipment. Uh, you know, people who were told that they were miscarrying when they were pregnant. That's awful. That's absolutely horrendous. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's a, a real human cost to this, and a real and that brings with it, I think, a kind of morbid fascination with stories like this. And there will be many, many more like this down the line. Uh, mm. But for now, we have the dropout. I'm fascinated to see where it goes. I'm waiting for the dramatization of the pilot TV podcast to um, hit Disney Plus at some stage. <laughs> the rise and fall. <laughs> James Dyer. Yes. Got too close to the sun. <laughs> well, didn't we already establish that I was going to get a 12-part miniseries? That was, oh, yeah. uh, that was Boyd's yeah. suggestion. Yeah, yeah. that would be the next one. Who would spend 12 parts watching James Dyer? <laughs> <laughs> what would a show based on the Emperor podcast be? Thrill a minute. That's right, folks. Yeah, it would be that's what it would be. That's what it would I'm be. I'm instantly thinking of an animation. I'm instantly thinking of a cartoon. <laughs> really? Long yeah. sighs and silence. It's very much, the Empire podcast is very much like, I don't know how, how much you guys know South Park. Uh, and this is my parting thought, my Jerry Springer-esque final thought. But uh, the Empire podcast is very much like there's a moment in... <laughs> <laughs> there's a moment in South Park, one of the episodes of South Park. It's very, it's very famous. Not the manatee one where... Um, they, you know, they get their ideas from a, a manatee tank for a Family Guy. Uh, but I'm talking about the moment where a group of elves um, somehow come into the narrative of South Park, and they have a a plan to make lots of money, and they put up on the uh, they put up on the screen a PowerPoint presentation of their plan to make lots of money, which is phase one: steal underpants. <laughs> phase three: profit. Phase two. Question mark. <laughs> that is basically the Empire Podcast approach, and uh, I think that's going to make a a compelling eight part show. Brilliant. Down the line. Anyway, yeah. uh, my phone's ringing off the hook. Hollywood is calling uh, with with offers, so I think that is time now to bring this podcast to an end. This co pro between. <laughs> the Empire Podcast and the Pilot TV Podcast to an end. The remaining episodes of The Dropout are going to drop one at a time. The first three dropped at the same time, but now it is one per week every Thursday on Disney Plus over the next few weeks uh, until there's no more. That's how these things work. Uh, so check that out. It is well worth your time. The Pilot TV Podcast, it pains me to say, is available every <laughs> Monday. Isn't that right, Jimbo? Yes, yes, it is. And is, uh, it says here, worth listening to. Yes, it's excellent. I highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> and as it has these two, Egypt and Boyd Hilton, on there every week talking about television? Television, yes. It's like, 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 like cinema, but smaller. <laughs> like, cinema, like, like a small cinema. Like a little That's small exactly cinema in your home. <laughs> it's, it's like magic. It, honestly, it's extraordinary. Uh, indeed. And the Emperor podcast is out every Friday, and that is about big TV. So it's like uh, TV shows that are shorter and are all smooshed into one, and you can watch them on a, on a big screen. So that's exciting stuff. Anyway, on that note, that is it for this The Dropout podcast in association with Disney+. Plus. All that remains now is for me to say goodbye to my two dropouts of such lethal cunning, Beth Webb. I have to say, guys, I'm very disappointed with your squadcast names today. I didn't know. I didn't think this was a, a place for jokes, really. <laughs> 
I mean, you've gone ahead and, and done it. I've just gone. I've, I've gone full bore. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely. I'm all in on the the, the funny squadcast names. But because um, usually what happens, we record when we record these remotely, where we're not in the studio, we record these in squadcast, and we can change our names, and we usually have a humorous name. Fine. So Beth Fine. has gone for Beth. We well, can call me yes. Elizabeth and E Holmes <laughs> if we have to. If we have to go there. Wow. Yep. We don't go with comedy names on the Pilot TV podcast. We take ourselves very, very seriously. Prestige. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, no, no larking about for us. No tomfoolery. Absolutely. No frippery. No skylarking <laughs> or horseplay on the Pilot TV podcast. So it's goodbye from Beth. <laughs> goodbye. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye, Christopher. You disappoint me, James, in so many ways, Always. but specifically Always. this way. And it's goodbye from me. Not another Marvel show. You never guess what I'm off to do. I'm off to watch a Marvel show. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.